The very idea of running a startup has taken on so much glamour and hype. But what's it really like? Is it more about grit, resilience, even luck? What about those make or break moments where things can either come together or go totally off the rails? That's where things get interesting, and those are the stories we'll explore. From the founder's perspective, unfiltered and honest. I'm Jenny Fielding, and I'm the Managing Director of Techstars New York City. I'm also an investor, founder, and an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship. And this is Founder Rising. Super excited today to have one of our favorite founders here, Shastri, the CEO and founder of Union Crate, a new standard for demand planning and supply chain management. Shastri and I have been lucky enough to know each other for a number of years now. We are just reminiscing about meeting each other in a startup weekend. And to see all the progress that the company has gone through has been, you know, pretty incredible. And to be along the ride has been awesome. So I'd love to start kind of at those beginning stages and just tell us a little bit of like what your background was and why you decided to start this company. Yeah, of course. Excited to be here. So in 2012, I started a tea brand. So we were selling matcha to a lot of the retailers and distributors across the United States. 2016, we started to struggle a lot with just managing the supply chain. We were buying teas from China, India, Japan, having it come into California, then California to upstate New York, then to our warehouse in Long Island City, Queens. So we had to be able to predict what the demand is at the customer so we essentially know when to buy products from the suppliers and when to have it shipped to our warehouse. We couldn't find a system to help us to do that demand planning and forecasting. So we decided to build something internally. And that's when I kind of met you at a Techstars Startup Weekend. I started to look for a developer to help me to build the tool. And I ran into James at the the Startup Weekend that you were in. Um, And James started working with me to build this. And we realized it was a kind of a need throughout the entire industry. It eventually turned into Union Crate. So happy accident, did not intend to start Union Crate, but it kind of spawned from a problem that I faced running my uh, tea company. I mean, I consider you to be the ultimate empath, like you were really solving a problem that you felt acutely. And being, you know, that type of founder, you're often have a vision beyond what other people can see. And so in the early days, you were kind of pitching this incredible journey and people didn't exactly understand what you were talking about or how acute the problem was. I mean, we still face that today, and especially really early on, people did not understand what the problem was. Supply chain is pretty boring, right? And most of the VC world doesn't really understand kind of the impact of that and that the entire world runs on a supply chain. So what we found is that we've just kind of simplified how we talk about it. When you were kind of out there trying to talk to people about the ideas, like what was the response? So everyone always defaulted to this being retail, like selling to a grocery store. No one kind of thought of the brand or the Pepsis of the Kraft Heinz of the world. Whenever we talked about CPG or supply chain, the natural default was thinking about grocery stores and thinking about retailers. So we just had to switch the conversation to say, hey, this is not a retailer. This is actually focused on selling to the brand who actually faces the major issue. So it was more about educating when we were talking as well and being specific and not saying inventory because inventory traditionally correlates with a retailer, but saying manufacturing or just changing the words that we use when talking to people. In the early days, you guys were getting a lot of feedback. You were doing a lot of customer discovery and you were kind of moving based on that. So talk to us about some of those times early on where you and James put your heads together and you're just like, I don't know if this is the product. Uh, We came five days from running out of money. And really early on in 2016, we were like, okay, we don't have much cash left. We're not really sure if we're actually selling the right thing or talking to the right customer. So we started to experiment 
and say, okay, let's think about five ways we can break down the product and focus on this one or hone in on this one industry. And we did that and we started to get a lot more attention uh, for that when we honed into the one specific problem that we wanted to solve rather than pitching this really larger vision. So honing into that actually helped us to kind of identify what the real issue was. When you had to kind of take that feedback and go in another direction, how did you kind of work through that in those days with James? How we worked through that was just a lot of long nights and testing and talking to as many people as we possibly can. Sometimes when you're starting a company, you kind of like work in this bubble and you don't reach out for feedback. And yes, you do get a lot of feedback from maybe one or two select people, but sometimes you need a larger subset of people to talk to and and people that are more in tune with the industry that you're trying to sell into. So what we did is we just spent a lot more time not just taking the feedback from the one or two people that we received it from, we just spent a lot more time doing industry research and industry outreach to kind of like hone into what we wanted to focus on. So very specific though, what was an example at the beginning where, you know, you started going down a path and then we're like, oh shoot, this isn't going to work and we need to figure out quickly because we're going to run out of cash. Yeah, so we were originally trying to sell to retailers because retailers had the data that we needed to then go and sell the product to a brand. And we were getting a lot of feedback that the retailers were not willing to give up the data. When we started to reach out to a lot more seasoned industry vets, they told us, well, brands are already buying this data from the retailers. You don't need to sell to retailers. You could just go directly to brands. And that was kind of the epiphany moment for us where we're like, okay, if we're spending all of our time focusing on selling to a grocery store or a Target or whatever, and they're already selling these data to the brand, then we can just go sell directly to the brand themselves because they already had the data we're trying to build a product to collect. So that pivotal moment for us was just switching the focus from one part of the industry and kind of going to the other part where they already had the information we we're trying to collect. As you think through building up your team, for a long time it was you guys and then maybe some contractors. We've done a really great job of attracting people who believe in the mission, but you haven't been able to pay the same that Google has and you've you know been very deliberate about building your team. Yeah, we focus on culture fit first for the company. And I think what we define as that is as people that really they don't have to necessarily like supply chain, you know, like the industry that we're in, but they want to solve a really big problem. Like their goal is to actually be a part of like the future and building the future. So when we bring people on and attract people on, we sell them on the vision and the true north of the company, which gets them really excited. It's like, wow, we can be a part of moving goods around the world. That's exciting to us. And we get them to come on board and we don't have to pay the amount of money that Google is paying or any other big company is paying because you're selling them this vision that you believe in that they start to believe in and see the excitement around it. Like what they're building is directly correlated to what someone might buy in the store, what their parents might buy in the store, right? And they had a hand in doing that. Selling that vision to the team that we have now and seeing how they react to that is how we're able to like attract good talent and build a really cohesive team. When it hasn't worked, what's happened? It becomes like a cancer. We've had one employee before that started out with us and he didn't really care about what we were doing, but he was really smart on solving some of the issues that we had. But it wasn't that motivating to the rest of the team because he would come in, leave you know, at a certain time, start at a certain time. He wouldn't meet deadlines because he wasn't that excited and it affected how everyone else was working because you have one guy that would put everything into what he was doing and then this person coming in that just does like halfway. So when we started screening more for the knowledge rather than the personality that you want in the company, it had an adverse effect on how we were building out the entire company as a whole. 
It's a hard situation, right? When someone's actually doing a good job, but they're just not emulating the kind of founder ethos or they're not really feel like they're part of the team, but it's hard to get rid of people like that because they're not not performing. They're just not really fitting in with the culture. So those are those are hard moments. I mean, he was actually not performing as well because it was teachable moments for him, but his kind of culture fit or how he was interacting with the rest of the company was, you know, adversely affecting his performance as well. So it was based on the performance, but we realized the core of that was actually how he interacted with everyone else. So it was hard to fundraise. You went through a few iterations of it. Part of it was not necessarily having the metrics that people wanted to see. And part of it was potentially, you know, you coming from different backgrounds and not being, you know, the quintessential founders. Talk about some of those early years when you were, you know, pitching people and they just kind of didn't get it. I mean, when we were raising, just appreciated what took us a rolling nine months probably to do that. And I think that was in part to me not probably pitching it the right way, right? And I've learned to hone in on that over time. There was no metrics, no one really understood the industry. So we really focused on the investors that really got what we were doing and believed in me as a founder and as a person. And the investors that were really early on that invested in that pre-seed believed in my ability and James and I's ability to actually build this company. And then our seed round took us three months, which was pretty normal. Our series A took us four weeks. So we kind of like went through iterations because the early investors that believed in you, like you kind of took that energy and just transferred it into something and proving them right. And then when we had the metric to show, we had another set of investors that really believed in us as founders and believed what we were doing and then took a chance on us again. And then for our Series A, we actually had metrics to show, which made it a lot easier. Looking back on that first raise, what would you have done differently? I mean, I know everyone wants to pitch the top tier investors, even if they're later stage, and you know everyone goes through that kind of yeah. journey. And so... What are some of the things that you guys figured out? I started figuring out that early on, focus on the people that believe in you. The name doesn't matter, right? The people that essentially believe in you really early on will be the ones that will push you through the hard times and would support you to get you through the good times. I was originally focusing on a lot of big names and focusing on being this kind of like sexy investor that comes in and kind of being that thing you see on TechCrunch. And it's like, that stuff doesn't really matter, right? You need to focus on who's going to believe in you and then the rest of it will fall into place. And that's what we learned over time. What about a market readiness? So maybe now people are kind of a little more excited about things around supply chain and logistics. I think when you started out, people were like, "Mm, that's not super sexy. We'd rather invest in some consumer gadget, right? Yeah. And so how do you push through when the market isn't necessarily there? I mean, you guys are very much pioneering the space. I would say you really just have to believe in what you're doing, right? I guess that's the rebel in us is that Someone might not see the vision that you have, but you do, and you don't really care what anyone else does. You're just going to do it anyways. And it actually worked out to our benefit that no one was focusing on it because we've got such a stronghold now that if anyone would come in the market, it's really hard for them to compete with us. Because the things that we were doing really early on that didn't really make sense to investors then actually mattered a lot now. It just takes a different heart or a different type of like gut, I guess, to kind of believe in what you're doing, even if no one else does. How many people on the team now? Wow. Uh, I think today now makes it 38. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. <laughs> that is totally incredible. Yeah, it was you and James for so long. It's, I know. Now it's 38 people. It's yeah, insane. Amazing. So as you come across these challenges, they will be forever, right? You're running a startup and happens all the time. 
Who are the people that you reach out to or have you cultivated kind of a community of, of advisors and mentors and people that aren't necessarily your investors, but they're people that care about you and, and your success? So the number one person I reach out to is actually James. We have a really close relationship. We talk about life. We talk about personal things. We're very, very close. And he is the first person I reach out to. And we'll like sit there and scream at each other and get upset. And then we'll like later like, hey, I'm sorry and kind of things. But we, we just have that relationship. Other than like us talking to each other. Yeah, outside uh, of your co-founder. Yeah, outside of my co-founder, I do have one or two mentors that I do work with that has built successful businesses before. Like I try to surround myself with people, founders that have built companies or are in the position that I want to be and talk them through some of the things I'm struggling with and try not to make the same mistakes that they've made along the way. But I think identifying maybe one or two people that are currently in the position of where you want to be three years or five years from now is important for me and kind of like how I grew. Thinking about Union Crate in the future, what's the big vision and how do you guys feel uniquely positioned to get there? Our thesis is that the supply chain is going to be driven by consumer demand. Right now, the supply chain is driven by factory output. Uh, Pepsi might push out manufactured products. It gets pushed to the store. If the, the product's not being sold, then they're going to promote it to actually sell that product. But consumers are becoming smarter. They're becoming more conscious of what they're buying, and they're basically driving how goods are moving across the world. So our vision is to be that supply chain OS. We want to be the platform that is completely driven by the consumer demand that enables a brand to say, okay, we're going to move goods around the world, not based on what we're producing, but leverage the consumer to actually know what to produce and where to store it around the world. So our five-year, 10-year plan is to be that next version of what SAP should have been, but basically control how goods move around the world and let that be driven by what the consumer's buying at the store level. What could go wrong as you build out that vision? <laughs> I mean, it's a confluence of things that you're betting on, right? market being ready, the customer, a buyer that, you know, wants to invest in something like this. So what are the things that keep you up at night with respect to the bigger vision? There's a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, (laughs) I think the one thing that keeps us up is when we grew, we grew, right? We started to get a lot of clients in that we originally couldn't handle. So what we're worried about is because we're building such this like mission critical platform, that we can't scale the product fast enough to keep up with the demand of the customer. Because we're selling into multi-million dollar, billion dollar businesses, and they depend on this to run their business. If we turn off the switch, their business will come to a halt for a period of time. So we have this struggle of balancing what we put out to the customer versus the scalability and how it actually works. I think what can cause us to fail is if we try to grow too fast and don't worry about the quality of the product that we're putting out there. You guys just raised a nice Series A. Has has that been announced yet? We didn't announce it. We closed it in uh, October 18th. It was led by Google, their um, AI fund called Gradient, also SUSE, Founders Fund, and a couple others. Laconia Capital, for example. All-star cast. Yes. So we didn't announce it. Now you did. Yeah, now (laughs) we did. You know, I updated my Crunchbase and I totally forgot that people kind of look at that and we sort of get a bunch of emails like, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't have updated that yet. (laughs) Uh, We plan to go out to kind of announce something later, but I've never been one of those founders that cared too much about announcing it. I kind of just want to work in silence. Under the radar, Shastri. Yeah, under the radar. You can't can't find something that you don't know exists, right? So... You know, you said that that took you four weeks. That's a pretty incredible amount of money to raise in that short of time. What were some of the relationship building and or factors that came in to place as you were raising? 
Yeah. So always be fundraising. Uh, so start conversations. <laughs> I think I taught you that. <laughs> yes, exactly. You did. We're not planning to raise a Series B soon, but we're having conversations now. So build relationship with investors really early on, so they can see how you progress and how. And that's how we, you know, got into TechRes, right? We, I annoyed you until you paid attention to me. But we started conversations with people that we wanted to work with like a year before already. So as soon as we closed the seed round, we started having Series A conversations, kept investors updated along the way. So when we were ready to go out and raise a Series A, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have conversations and see where this goes. And we ended up getting a term sheet after four weeks. That's a pretty inspiring story, especially yeah. compared to the early days. Where nine months for a pre-seed, right? Nine months, yeah. yeah. Lots, yeah. Of, lots of doors. Yeah. My final question is that running a startup is the hardest thing you can possibly do. Yeah. So much ups and downs every week and so much not working out and, you know, all of these trials and tribulations. So you are one of the most resilient founders that I've met. Like nothing can Thank shake you. you. And even when things are kind of looking bleak, you seem to focus on the positive and really kind of come back strong. So what are the things that keep you going in the office every morning, you know, first one in, going to the gym every morning? Like what keeps you so motivated? I really believe in what we're doing, but I think what else is there, right? What's the worst that could happen? If I lose, I've lost before. You can always rebuild yourself. I think if I don't try and I don't give my 100%, I'm automatically going to fail, right? So if something's not going well, I'm still going to push. There's only so much that you can do, but my outlook on life, I guess, is that I'm going to try until someone just like tells me to stop or just makes me stop. And even then, I'm probably just going to still be annoying and try again. What keeps me going is that I'm in a constant battle with myself. I don't care about the money. I don't care about anything. I'm just curious if I can do it. Like I want to see if I can build an IPO company because it's a battle with myself. Can I actually do it? Am I the person that's capable of doing that? And I think too many people are in a battle with others rather than internal battle with themselves. And that internal battle with myself is what actually keeps me going. Doesn't matter what's happening outside of me, I still wake up like, I need to get up, I need to lift this weight, I need to go, I need to push further. If I want to sell to 10 customers, I need to do 20. Can I actually do it? So what drives me is just being in a battle with myself. I mean, I think last year was maybe the first time you'd taken a holiday in years and years. After five years, yeah. Yeah, I'd seen uh, some of the Instagram photos. What is it that you're trying to do now as someone that's been running the company for more than three years to make sure that you're mentally ready? What are the self-care routine that you've implemented? Yeah, so number one... I'm not try- taking a vacation in five years is definitely not one of them. Yeah, I'm <laughs> due for another one right now. So number one, I think, is kind of let go of certain things. As a founder, as a CEO, sometimes you take a lot of things on your plate. The one thing that I've been practicing doing is just giving things away and giving people more leadership that gives me more free time to do things and focus on the bigger vision. But other than that, I do try to like put my phone on silent from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. just to have some quiet time. That's one thing that I do to keep my sanity. And I'll try to like put my phone on silent from like 9 p.m. to like whenever the next morning. So I think that has helped me keep my sanity a bit. My 6 a.m. gym sessions keeps my sanity a bit. Taking time to just go and sit in a cafe and just observe the world has helped me. Those are just little tiny things in between me taking vacations, which I'm probably over a year now, two for one, that helps me get through. All right, Shastri, well, we want you to go on vacation. Yeah. I love that thought of around competing with yourself. I think that that really resonates with me and, and kind of what drives me as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, and what kind of stories you'd like to hear next. You can find me on Twitter at J.E. Fielding. 